0: Welcome to behind the page the Eli marks podcast with your hosts John Gaspard and me Jim Cunningham Hey there Jim hi John how are you I'm good it's the it's we did it it's the final episode of season one it's uh, I, it is both happy and sad We did it and uh, I'm sad to see it's done but not really because we've got so many other books to do.
1: That's true. That's true. We'll be coming up on season two before you know it. We finished up uh, the ambitious card the last episode. We'll start the bullet catch when we begin season two, but for right now as a special treat to round out the season. So we'd have exactly 24 episodes because as we know, there are 12 months in a year and we come out twice a month. So do the math 24 episodes. So for this final oh, bonus episode, why.
0: I did yeah. not know. It's- so it's, it's news to me, folks. If you're, if you're scratching your head, you can join my club because now I'm thrilled to know the reason behind this special episode, but yeah, that's great. Good.
1: I would just say if, if you had come to any of the meetings,
0: (laughs) (laughs) you would know that.
1: Yeah, I know. Well, we'll we'll talk a little.
0: It's just you, isn't it? It is
1: mostly just me. Anyway, um, what we're going to do this bonus episode is since the um, the ambitious card is done, uh, I thought we would give everyone a treat and listen, let them listen to The Invisible Assistant, uh, which is the first of the Eli Mark short stories. In that story... Uh, Eli is doing a corporate show. It's a lunch show, but it is a corporate show. And I thought it makes sense that we could have as our special guest, our special surprise guest, someone we're both excited about—a magician who we both met in the corporate world—and
0: that is Mike Super. Uh, not just a name; it's—he uh, is absolutely super. Not just as a performer, but as a human being, as a uh, as an ombudsman if you will. He his ability to connect. To people pre, during, and post show is unparalleled in my experience. I've never seen anything even close uh, to the way Mike approaches stuff. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Uh, We both had a lot of experience uh, working with
1: other types of corporate entertainment over the years. You as an MC, me as a producer, a creative director, and he really he he set a new standard for uh, what it takes to. to really uh, over-deliver for a client and made people
0: want to book him again. Right. I- including us, John, I passed his name off to six or seven corporate clients and two or three of them booked him. Yeah. He's, he's just that good. And he is now a friend, which I'm, I, I count myself blessed and lucky. That's another uh, benefit of uh, being on the John Gaspard express. I met Mike super through you and and now he's a friend. And th- some of the things that I watched him do, I have tried to emulate in my own work because it's, it was like so eye-opening. And I think I, you know, have always tried to do more than was asked. I try to be flexible. I try to be good-natured. But seeing Mike do what he does absolutely opened my eyes uh, to the potential there to be a better guy, a better performer, a better teammate, all of it. It just was just so great.
1: Yeah. And that was exactly the, uh, when our conversation started. That was the first thing up was you talking about the first time we'd seen Mike and how impressed you were with uh, the way he approached his performance. Uh,
0: Mike, I remember uh, the first time I uh, saw you in a corporate setting. You uh, you did. We were in uh, Las Vegas. You did a 10 minute teaser uh, before their dinner, then a 50 minute set uh, that absolutely uh, killed them. But what really kind of shocked me because I had done several corporate gigs up to that point was the amount of time you were willing to give the client after the event. You came out after the event was completely over, the awards were done, and you did about another hour of close-up card magic. And it was just a, for me, it was a real class in in customer service and how to, you know, uh, uh, really deal with a client over and above the expectation that they had for you. And in fact, if memory serves, they liked you so much, they brought you back. Uh, the they next did. year. So it was a back-to-backer, and I have to think that some of that customer care that you did an hour of magic after your show uh, for people had something to do with that. What is that something you always do? Yeah. So wow. First off,
2: amazing memory, Jim. I remember it, but I am amazed. Uh, you know that you remember it, and you were spot on. That is exactly what I did, and I try to do at all of the events. So to touch on why I do that at the end. It is very purposeful um, because first off, and it, it, number one, I truly do love doing magic. So whether I'm getting paid for it or not, my wife will attest to this. I, I love, if someone wants to see something, I love to do it, right? Uh, but in that event, I, I, you know, humbly try to over-deliver as much as I can with a corporate client. Um, And because the more their audience loves what they saw or the more personally uh, touched they are by the magic that I'm doing, uh, the more likely they are to bring me back with a whole new show. Because as we know, in the corporate arena, they may say, yeah, let's do magic uh, this year and then literally a lot of times the mentality is, okay, we've done magic, let's right. do something else. So, my challenge in the corporate arena has always been how can I make them want me back uh, next year? Because we all know the best customer is the customer you already have, and it's the easiest one to rebook. And sometimes, you know, it can be challenging to get them to realize we could do a whole nother show. Uh, That feels totally different than the one we just did. So when I go out after I love to meet the CEO as many executives as I can, and even more importantly, if they have their wife or their family at the event, and sometimes the CEO, I'll meet them. I'll do you know a piece of magic for them that leaves them with a souvenir, right? That every time they show it, kind of the magic trick happens over again as they describe it. And usually they describe it better than I did it, <laughs> uh, which is, is great. Uh, and uh, I, I learned that from Michael Lamar in his uh, books when I was really, really young and have always done it. So then as long as they want to see it, I love, they were breaking the event down around us, if you remember, right? All of the tech crew, the lights were coming down. And yet I'll still, if they want, if the audience wants to see it, I'll do it. And and that is with the hope of people can, you know, being touched personally with the close-up magic. And they remember it, you know, they remember, hey, he did this and we didn't, that wasn't part of the contract. And, And I think anytime you have, whether it's, you know, you're in a grocery store or a restaurant, Restaurant, right. The waitress, if the waitress re- brings your kids cookies at the end at no charge, uh, that leaves an impression. And that's kind of what I try to do.
0: Well, it certainly uh, was mind blowing to me because and I'll, I'll just own this. As soon as I am done uh, doing whatever they want <laughs> yes. me to do, I pop that bow tie. Boom. Like Tony Bennett. And I'm back in my room. <laughs> ordering a cheeseburger. So to see yeah. you uh, doing it, you know, and I kind of hung out because I like magic. So I was like, well, I'm going to watch because this is great. But it, it, I was shocked by the amount of time that you spent with these people who were Dang. essentially, I mean, yes, indeed, the, uh, the CEO was there for a little while, but by and large, it was rank and file, if I remember correctly. Yes. I mean, these are yes. just people that, and you stayed for an hour. You did more close-up magic after the event was over Then you had to do within the kind of event. the actual contract. Yeah, it was impressive. It, 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 yeah,
2: and I am a people person too, right? And I am also though, I can't, it's all kind of calculated in that that could believe it or not, even though it's sort of like, and we're not saying just the audience members, but there was no decision makers there. So, but for that event, but I can't, Jim, I can't tell you and John how many times I have done that. And it could be, you know, a wife that didn't even wanna come to the show that I'm doing close up magic for, it was her husband's event that goes, you know what? I, uh, I run a doctor's clinic in, you know, Minneapolis and we, we would like to have mike at that event and it usually stems from me doing that so it helps to you know it doesn't work all the time but it helps to rebook the event and secondly it's sort of if if they're at that event they're usually professionals right and we all know professionals tend to marry other professionals and or, or they're involved in other things. And I've had, you know, I've done golf outings with, you know, one of the, you know, just, just quote, just audience members that were, you know, very impressed with the close up magic. And so that's why I do it. It drums up more business. It creates goodwill. It allows me to over deliver. And none of those are bad things in business. So, amen. When yeah. you started out, were you planning on a corporate career? I always, and even to this day, I do a ton of corporate stuff, uh, and I love it. And the way I got started in it, it's a—I'll I'll tell you the fast end of the story was uh, a very, very popular and very talented, better corporate magician than I could ever be uh, from Pittsburgh. Paul Gertner is a magician, sure. and he's been on fool us. He's fooled Penn and Teller like you know two or three times, and. Super great guy, and he's from Pittsburgh. And I remember back in the day, for all you kids listening, we didn't even, we didn't have YouTube. We didn't have, if you wanted to watch magic on TV, that wasn't David Copperfield, who I'm a huge fan of, but you would have to tape it uh, on Carson, on the Tonight Show. I will never forget this I you know I just wanted to be a magician so bad had no idea how to make money at it other than the little ways I was doing it around my hometown and Paul Gertner happened to be a guest performing for Johnny and they mentioned he was from Pittsburgh so I went through the old these are called yellow pages uh and (laughs) I actually went under magicians and at the time it was uh, called magic Core, which I think he changed to the Paul Gertner group later and has since retired, but he, uh, I didn't know Paul from Adam. Right. And I called him up and I said, Hey, uh, listen, if you were looking for somebody to, Be your protege i am willing to put illusions together i will do what you need me to do so you don't have to do it and he was so nice he's like well why don't you come to the magic meeting next month at the you know the ibm that's international brotherhood of magicians yes that is a real organization (laughs) and uh i went i met paul he's like hey come over to my my office and i met his secretary and he's like why don't you clean some of this up and he was so kind to me but didn't teach me any magic at the time. And then there was another magician that was doing a lot of corporate work. His name was uh, Tim Conover, Uh great magician, like yeah. just fantastic. And it's a tragedy, he is no longer with us. But uh, I got this, and this is how I got into corporate. I was working as a messenger at Mellon Bank in downtown Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I still live. And they, uh, I knew everybody because I was a messenger. I was a people person. I would talk to all the executives. And, and, and as it turned out, Paul was doing an event for them where he was s- sort of sub-booking Tim Conover. Uh, Paul wasn't performing and he goes, Mike, listen, uh, we're going to set up tents. They want psychics there for some reason. And so right away, I, I realized that it's more than just doing a magic show. If you can help it, you want to help them meet their needs. And I go, okay. And he's like, I need you to set up these PVC tents. There was like 10 of them that there would be psychics in here. I thought I was going to be performing, but of course I wasn't. I was manual labor, but I got to see Timmy Conover perform like seven nights in a row. And I watched him work this audience and he was fantastic. And I, it was the first time I'd ever seen a trick called the book test. Right. And I could not figure this out. It was amazing, and I knew I wanted to do what they were doing because uh, while at the time I had never heard of Timmy Conover, he and Paul were rock stars to these this corporate audience, right? Because they were very elite. It was almost like being unknown gave them this underground, untouchable, uh, intangible stardom. And I wanted to, you know, to do that. So that's, I just started sort of patterning myself after what Paul would do uh, business-wise. And that's how I learned at first. That's how I got into it. My whole thing is, one, especially at a corporate event, right? You're representing the company. So uh, hopefully you're representing them very strongly. And more importantly, there's a meeting planner usually behind a lot of it, and a whole production company that may have suggested you. So their whole uh, reputation is depending on you, you know, doing a good, good show. So the, I just always want people to relate. You know what I mean? Like come out and and feel like they're at the end of it, they're your friend. I, I want the audience to feel that way. And more importantly, I want the meeting planner and the CEOs to feel that way because it is we're much more apt to do business with our friends, right? And okay. uh it just becomes a very easy thing. So uh hopefully that translates into the show. But uh if if you do that everywhere, no matter whether it's corporate or any other kind, I think you'll you know, get rebooked at least or talked about and get another gig as a result.
1: Yeah. What's the best part about working corporate gigs and what's the worst part? And pretend that you don't have any clients listening right now. Yeah, no, no. And I,
2: and that and this is the kind of guy I am, I would answer this even to the clients and answer it honestly. So, the best part of a corporate gig is twofold one is the paycheck is usually very, very good. Um, and because a lot of times I'm the least expensive thing that they're putting on. So, uh, with that in mind, um, the paycheck is always very, very good for the amount of time on stage. And the other thing that is very, very good is, and I touched on this a second ago is I love that they have, the audience has a lot of times their expectations of what this entertainment or what this magician is going to be is so low that uh when i come out i i kind of know i'm going to surprise them in a good way uh and that and that's the other the great the great thing watching that changeover from a bunch of people in suits or tuxedos sitting there with their arms folded, their body language is very closed off to, at the end, they're waving and going, yeah, great job. Oh, it was amazing. Right. Or a, or a standing O. So I love that's the best part for me. The corporate expectation from the audience is very low from the client booking you it's very high. Right. So, uh, you can't help if you have a decent act to go over very, very well. The worst part, of being in a corporate uh, setting is is twofold. One is the endless meetings about the same thing for three months out before the event, right? It'll, you'll do a conference call, uh, you'll do, uh, now it's a lot of Zoom meetings, but, In the corporate world, everybody is so afraid. I And this is just my opinion, I think, why this happens. They have the same meeting 12 times before you get to the show, right? Or, and, and I think that's because nobody wants to be on the line for, should something go wrong, to say, why did we not have a meeting about this, right? So they wanna make sure everyone's on the same page. And I completely understand it. And that's, of course, why I am always more than happy to do it. Uh, that said, the 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 other hard part for for corporate clients uh is to understand that a show uh with audience interaction while it can be planned uh you, you know you have to understand it's an evolving animal so if you want a great show i may have to step out of my set list a couple of times or so they like to a corporate client likes to get a sheet of paper with everything listed on it so they know what to expect so for me i tend to view it i'll give them that and i let them know hey and if it alters don't worry the main thing is i won't go over time than you want because if i go five minutes over i have now thrown the rest of the day out of whack. Everybody is mad at me. Uh, so what I do is I just try to hit it. Perf- I hit the time perfectly, uh, unless they say uh, no, it doesn't matter, Mike. And then I might do you know an extra five or ten minutes. But uh, the hard part is just the constant meetings about the same uh, thing. And I want to make them feel better. And I-, I think until they see you and get a relationship with you. Uh, it's impossible to do that. So you just do your best. So that's the highs and the lows.
1: (laughs) But from the the production end of it, I will say that uh, all things being equal, a performer who is done on time is always preferred over one who doesn't seem to care about your agenda. And even all things not being equal, where you go, they were fantastic, but I don't trust them, as opposed to he's excellent and he's going to, do exactly what we need, and he's more worried about it than we are.
2: Yes, and that is key because what people don't realize in our entertainment field is you can really have, you should have zero ego going into these events, right? Because It is not about you. You're part of usually, you know, a three day to five day event, right? And you're, let's say you're doing an hour, you're an hour of three days. So it, when you go and do corporate magic, it's no longer, you know, the Mike Super Show, right? It's, It's the client's show. And I'm just somehow trying to add it, add to that. But you can't go in and go, I need this, I need this, I need this because I like to go in and say, give me a 10 minute lighting check if we can, unless they've if I've had where well, we've made CEOs appear. Right. Or um, for instance, we did uh, one event where every of uh, all of the major executives wanted to do one trick that I had to, to teach them. Uh, it worked out great. But again, then I could say, OK, let's just do one rehearsal and uh you know give me five minutes with each one but normally i try to have as small of a footprint as i can because they'll design the stage for that event people don't realize this and if you can't fit into that that's a huge problem if you say well i have to have this right because i have it at every other event you can't be that way you have to be flexible be willing to change and just make it work you know to the best of your ability and i think You know meeting planners and and and, uh companies would rather that than you going it maybe it would maybe your hour would be a better show if they had built the stage differently for something that you wanted but in the end it doesn't matter all that matters is you make it work with them as easily as possible because like you said you on your back end you have way more stuff to worry about so you know but that took 30 years to learn you know (laughs) yes i remember being a kid i was maybe like 21 doing a corporate event and i shipped i think it was something 52 road cases uh to iowa for this event and they wanted to kill me because there was no it was this was not a very nice ballroom so there was no place to put 52 cases it was in the back in the kitchen and and I learned very quickly, it, it's not necessarily about how much you ship at is value as to what you can, you know, how easy you can make it for them. That's the value.
0: So do you, do you choose, how do you, how do you choose the effects that you do for a corporate show? Knowing all of the, you know, I can't work blue. I can't, all of that Correct. kind of stuff. How do you choose the effects you're going to do? Yeah.
2: Well, for a corporate event, the it, it'll start with, I I do two types. One is where I'm coming in with just my show, right? And uh, at that point, I'll take just bits, parts from my theater show. Luckily, I made the choice a long time ago. I wanted to be able to work for families, for, uh, you know, Disney uh, and corporate. And so the good news is everything I do fits pretty much. I, I can take one routine out of my theater show and throw it in a corporate uh, arena and it and it's fine. But what I like to do is, if they're asking, sometimes they want a lead-in to the show. Like I said, like making um, somebody levitate or uh, making someone appear, right? Like I and I ended up using my corporate appearance on Ellen with Ellen, right? Because you can't. She had a bad back and you know can't lay down and hide or anything like that and it's the same problem with a ceo you're making up here because he's in a 10,000 dollar suit or tuxedo that can't get wrinkled right so um you just find pieces of magic or you know create something for whatever their branding is and again you you know jim you and you just don't work blue uh be you know everyone is there in front of their peers so if you can make the audience, and this is key, you have to make the audience trust you in five minutes that you're not going to embarrass them in front of their boss or their employees, right? And once everyone sort of gets, oh, this guy's not here to embarrass us, if anybody, he's going to embarrass himself, then, you know, they, they relax and they, you know, they want to take part more. So, uh, And I choose anything I can with interaction because again, it's the humble thing. No one really wants to see me, but Jim from the office, who's usually a hoot anyway, is now on stage (laughs) and they go, oh, this is going to be good. Right. And that keeps them from getting up and going to the bar. Great. So
1: what do you do in that situation when, um, when you, you know, you probably have a pretty good eye for picking someone from the audience as to. You know you're probably watching throughout the show to figure out who's engaged who seems to be this or that when someone's foisted on you who's not a good volunteer what do you do
2: yeah so here's this is great by the way you hit on something really really good because people go it's a corporate show what can go wrong well i will tell you number one you could get somebody who is drunk right and their inhibitions are down i cannot tell you how many people have looked sober when i chose them and i realized by the time on the short walk up to stage that i'm going oh boy <laughs> okay and again it, it, again it's as my job as the entertainer to be a gentleman I, my job is all right look let's just say bill is trashed right now i have to make it look like bill isn't trashed right because uh as a good host I don't want you know to make him look bad in front of anybody. So there's that. You're dealing with drunk people, possibly. Secondly, uh, the higher up you go on the uh, executive scale, we're talking about type A personalities. You're talking about people that are very comfortable standing in front of a bunch of people and telling them what they did wrong and why it needs to fix and or has sort of this Uh, By play that they don't want to give that up because they're used to being in charge so that type a personality, you have to also learn to deal with so and then there's like the clown that is a combination of both nothing's worse than a type a personality that is drunk and so. Number one, this is, I tell people all the time, you don't want your first gig to be a corporate gig, right? I learned how to deal with all of this, at least in my own way, from doing restaurants when I was a teenager. I would go and, you know, do Pizza Hut or Olive Gardens and stroll around for two hours on a Tuesday night. And... It's a great way to get stage time. When magicians ask me how to get started, th- that's your, am- that's your um, amateur stand-up club, amateur night, right? Because you get five minutes at each table, and even if it goes terrible, the next table's brand new. So you, uh, in one night, you can get in thirty different audiences, right? And you keep doing that, and you're going to deal with the drunk guy. You're going to deal with a couple that's fighting. You're going to deal with a type A personality, or another guy that wants to show off in front of you know another guy. By messing with the magician, so when that happens for me, I'm very comfortable of laughing at myself. And there is a point where you can't hide. Let's say that someone is super, super obnoxiously drunk, right? So, and if they're really coming at you, and this is like the Don Allen uh, sort of mentality, who's a magician, uh, you know, from a great magician from Days of Old, and. Instead of trying to battle that person, right, and, you know, with heckler lines and whatnot, the nicer you are and the more you're able to laugh at yourself and kind of once the audience knows the situation you're in, they tend to get on your side and laugh at how well you can handle this or you can't handle this gracefully and if it's really bad, like if it's really bad, the audience will. Def- I've had the audience defend me from a heckler or you know someone on stage, and then I'm like, no, no, he's a good guy, right? And then you're you're the good guy again. So I just say experience, right? Until you know, you can read as many books as you want, but until you're in the situation and dealing with it, I have got. I've done a show where people have come up and they're like, hey, that was great, but the way you handled Tim was amazing. Like very classy, uh, I'm so, and they'll apologize to you. But as, so as long as you're, I just say be nice and be able to laugh at yourself. And um, if, if, if they're funny though, I love that, right? They could be obnoxious and drunk, but if they're killing it, I am happy to step back a little bit and make the most of that because at the end of the show that feeling that they were giving their friends gets attributed to you so you win either way
0: okay. mike do, do your corporate clients reach out to you and and want you to tailor your show in some way and say you know hey I, well, could you do this or we you know how how does that work do they are they picking your routine for you or or they do they have input
2: they first off, they always have input. And if I'm the first thing I'll do with, uh, any corporate client is I'll ask, what is the event? How, you know, your standard questions, how many people are going to be there has nothing to do with my pricing structure because my pricing structure, those that are booking me, it's pretty set. Like they already know it. The reason I'm asking it is because I want to see what I can pitch to them. Again, it, they don't know what they want, right? It's the old Steve Jobs line. People don't know what they want until you show them, right? So uh, the, I usually focus it in, in in two parts. One is to get them booked. So you wanna show how long do you want, we can do that. And once that happens, then as an add-on, I'll suggest to them, right? Uh, you know, if you'd like, do, do you have a theme? Do you do you want some? Do you want some scripting? And 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 that will go one of two ways. One way i will go: Nope. Listen, we just want it to be fun for everybody. It's the end of the year, holiday party. We want them to just have fun. No scripting necessary. Okay, great. And uh, so that kind of will stop it there. Then there's the other half that go well. What do you what, what do you mean by scripting? And I go, What well, do you have a theme this year? And they'll say, uh, We do actually go and you know maybe it's I, and I'm making this up right. Uh, maybe it's uh, you know going above and beyond or raising say you know raising our standards. And I'll then I'll go back and I'll take that and I learned this. This is not this is just from being exposed to great guys like Paul Gertner, who was a master at you could give him any trick and he could not only make it corporate and entertaining but include a branded message i i was always amazed and he would send me for i used to work for sherwin williams at the international builders home show uh basically you know they they supply paint how can you make any trick work with paint right and he would he would write it all for me like he was and i would just go paul you are unbelievable he could take a rope trick make it fit paint he could take a gambling trick make it fit paint um and I, and that's kind of how i learned to do it myself i would watch you know and learn what, what paul would do so when they say scripting i'll go let me just write up a quick little thing for you and give me your theme this year and then i'll, I'll give that to them and they'll say okay uh, oh, that's good. We, that wouldn't be bad. Because for me, I always tell them I'm not the informational guy, so to speak. I can drop in four or five bits of information and that the people will walk away with instead of like a ton of information that no one's ever going to remember. So that's what I always suggest. And one of those might be, do you want the CEO to appear, right? If it's special for them, they'll go, is there anything, the CEO, he loves it. We want him or her involved. Okay. I go, well, uh, has she, what have you done in the past with her? Uh, We've done this, this, and this. And one was the female CEO repelled in from the ceiling. (laughs) So that was where I was like, okay, well, that was a quite an entrance. Wonder, though, this year if we uh, do an entrance where she appears from Shadows. And then I'll send them the clip I did on Ellen, you know, and they'll go, yes. Or uh, you, you have to really think about how to rebrand things. And then, of course, with for that extra work, you get rewarded with, you know, an additional add-on for the show. So... They usually don't suggest it. I suggest it. And if they are at all interested, I'll give them plenty to choose from.
1: You know, that's such a smart thing to do when dealing with clients. And it's something I learned uh, from watching Mike is don't say, what do you want? Because they don't know what they want. (laughs) Uh, Give them options. Uh, Do you like this or that? I mean, it's like uh, be an eye doctor for everybody, which is better for you, A or B? Yeah. A or B. Uh, and by giving them something to choose from, you're going to get a better response. The idea of options is is so helpful. Uh, and it's just one of
0: the many things that uh, we took away from our time with Mike Super. Uh, you know, the other thing I, 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 I should say about Mike is that, yes, indeed, uh, his level of customer service is, in my opinion, from all of the corporate entertainers I've ever seen or worked with unparalleled. But beyond that, he's not going to get a second booking if he isn't great on stage. And he is he's so good uh, and so likable and so charming and funny. But the magic is good. It's great. He's terrific. Yeah. He's, uh, I, he's one of my favorite guys, uh, bar none, to watch and to learn from. Uh, he's a master. Uh, on so many levels. And I've learned from him. And I'm, again, grateful uh, that we have formed a friendship.
1: Yeah, he's fantastic. You know, we talked to him for such a long time that there was one whole other section that we went into with him that was too long to put in th- today's episode. So I have put it up as a bonus episode on our YouTube channel. And it's Mike talking about performing magic on TV. He uh,
0: he has performed and been on all of the sort of major shows that are uh, competition shows from Phenomenon to the Penn and Teller show to America's Got Talent Uh, and listening to him talk about his experiences but also just sort of the inner workings of all of that I found riveting because you know I mean, you assume one thing about how this works and there's just so much more uh, behind the scenes stuff that Mike tipped us to that I I just, even if, uh, even if you're not interested necessarily in the magic, it's fascinating to listen to somebody who has participated in these kinds of shows and hear the sort of machinations and the ins and outs and ups and downs and victory and heartbreak. It's just, it was great. I love that part of this. So I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're putting that up on the YouTube channel. So yep, okay, that's now.
1: right there. It's a bonus video for episode 124. Mike super talking about being on TV. So now that we've listened to Mike talk about what it means to be a corporate performer, let's uh, dive into the world of Eli Marks, uh, I guess kind of the reason we're here, and see how Eli handles that sort of work. Uh, The Invisible Assistant, like I mentioned, is the first of the Eli Marks short stories. There's a whole bunch more uh, in the eighth book in the series, The Self-Working Trick. But this one kind of came from two sources, one of which was watching Mac King do his cards across routine. Uh, which he he does with the, with the yellow poncho, uh, which is such a great routine. Uh, yeah. We need to get him on here at some point, I think just to talk about the creation of that trick, because it was something that spanned a dozen years, I think, where he had yeah. the original idea and then figured out where it needed to go many, many years later. So that's certainly part of what's going on here. But also it was fun in this case to see another side of homicide detective Fred Hutton that we hadn't seen before, which was his pet allergies. With that in mind, Jim, pick up those few sheets of paper, and let's listen to The Invisible Assistant.
0: The Invisible Assistant and Eli Mark's short mystery. Now for my next effect, I'm going to need another volunteer. I timed this statement to land just as the applause from the last trick was starting to wane. I had completed a well-received, ambitious card routine with the blonde volunteer to my left. What was her name again? Jan, Jane. Joan? And now I needed another willing soul to join the two of us on stage. You know, just to ensure that I haven't prearranged any of this, let's make the selection of the next volunteer more, I don't know, Random, I said casually, as if I didn't say that same phrase in the exact same way in every show. We'll let Chance decide who will join the two of us here on stage, I continued, neatly sidestepping the need to remember the blonde's name. I'm going to toss this into the crowd, I said, picking up the bowling ball that I had made magically appear earlier in the act. And whoever catches it... Laughter drowned out the rest of the sentence, as it always did, which was convenient because I didn't actually have an ending for the sentence. I dropped the heavy ball to the stage and reached into my bag, pulling out a bright orange Nerf ball. You know, after the unfortunate incident that happened at the last show, let's try this instead. Heads up. I tossed the Nerf ball into the center of the crowd, and a hand shot up and grabbed it in midair. Terrific, I said, squinting, trying to see past the bright stage lights, which were positioned low and directly in my eyes. That was often the case when doing a corporate show in a low-ceiling hotel ballroom. Now, you toss it somewhere else in the room. The ball sailed through the room again and was snatched out of the air by another hand. Great. Now to really make it random, why don't you toss it one more time? The ball sailed across the room, flying over all the folks finishing their identical chicken lunches and headed straight toward a couple who had taken a standing-room-only spot on the far wall. Fortunately, the man had great timing, reaching out and snatching the ball out of the air before it could hit the woman in the face. With the stage lights in my eyes, this was all a squinty tableau, but I sensed that the man wasn't enthusiastic about being the final catcher in this selection process. Coaxing would be required. Impressive catch, sir, I said, stepping to the edge of the stage. Come on up and uh, give us a hand, will you? My Uncle Harry had taught me that particular phrasing, which was designed to get the audience to applaud without realizing that they were being asked to do so. They responded on cue, and the man who had caught the last toss of the Nerf ball began to move hesitantly toward the front of the room. In my new position at the lip of the stage... I was finally able to get a look at him as well as the woman he was standing with, although it took me a moment longer than it should have to recognize her. It was my ex-wife, and the guy with the great timing, who was trudging slowly toward the stage, was her relatively new husband. And what is your name? I asked as he stepped onto the stage. He glared at me because he knew damn well I knew his name. But this was a show after all, and I had to keep things moving. Fred, he growled. Fred, I repeated, with more pep than was really required. I traditionally always referred to him by his full name and title, Homicide Detective Fred Hutton, but I'd have to set that annoying habit aside for the time being. Fred, please step to my right and Joan, I turned to the blonde. Melissa, she corrected. Melissa, of course, if you'd stand here on my left. I had done this routine maybe a thousand times, but the sudden surprise addition of my ex-wife's husband on stage, not to mention my ex-wife in the audience, had scrambled the routine in my head. I don't know if you folks can feel it out there, but there's a real chemistry between these two volunteers, I lied. In reality, there could not have been less chemistry on stage as witnessed by the two stiffs flanking me. I soldiered on. To demonstrate the connection, I propose we perform a short experiment using some playing cards and these two powerfully attractive personalities. The flat response this elicited from both volunteers actually produced a collective chuckle from the crowd. With that, I launched into my cards across routine, counting three cards into Melissa's outstretched hand, and then seven cards into the hand that homicide detective Fred Hutton had reluctantly put forward. I caught his eye as I finished counting the seventh card, and the icy stare he gave me told me exactly how much he was enjoying his time on stage. To recap, I continued, doing my best to remember where I was in the routine and where I needed to go, I placed three cards in Melissa's hands and seven cards in Fred's hands. I nearly used his full name and title, but caught myself at the last second. Now, with the help of my invisible assistant, we will demonstrate the powerful attraction between these two happy volunteers. This produced another ripple of laughter from the crowd. I plowed forward using homicide detective Fred Hutton's stone face to great comic effect as I completed each phase of the trick, calling on the help of the invisible assistant at each key point. First, when he counted the cards, homicide detective Fred Hutton found that he had eight cards. He counted again and found that he now held nine cards. At the same time, the blonde stack of cards diminished from three to two and then to one. The routine came to an end with all ten cards in Fred's hand and only one card in the blondes. That card, of course was her selected and signed card from the earlier ambitious card routine. The audience gave the performance a better response than it really deserved, and for a brief moment, I considered ending the show right there. But I could hear my Uncle Harry's voice in the back of my head admonishing me for considering ending the act with volunteers still on stage. The final applause should be for you and you alone, he would have said. No magician worth his salt wants to share a standing ovation with a volunteer. Although such an ovation seemed unlikely, I ushered the two volunteers off the stage, persuading the audience to give them another well-deserved round of applause. I then moved right into the classic magical snowstorm effect, which I, and virtually every other magician in the world, used as my finale when a big finish was required. I triggered my iPod with the remote switch in my pocket, and suddenly the room was filled with Nat King Cole singing Walking in a Winter Wonderland as a snowstorm appeared in my hands and blew out onto the first three rows. This brought the show to a quasi-rousing close and littered the stage with small bits of white paper, which I'm sure was always a delight for the hotel cleaning staff. The corporate meeting planner met me as I came off stage with a big grin and a check that, sadly wasn't nearly as large as her smile. All in all, a profitable, if slightly bumpy, corporate show. Imagine my surprise when I saw you two in the audience, I said. Imagine my surprise when you called Fred on stage, replied my ex-wife. Homicide detective Fred Hutton declined to contribute to our conversation, instead choosing to stare at a point somewhere in a far corner of the hotel restaurant. His wife, Deirdre, was taking more delight in his impromptu performance than I might have expected. When we were married, she kept a cool demeanor at nearly all times and rarely took delight in anything, especially me. We were considered to be, as many people later confessed, an odd match. That was a nice routine, she continued, with the cards moving between the people and the invisible assistant. Thanks... That's Cards Across, a classic. Next time you're in Vegas, check out Mac King's version. It's sublime. The waitress took that moment to appear with the coffee I had ordered. I stirred in some cream and took a long sip. Had I known you two wanted to see the show, I would have reserved you some actual seats. It was something of a spur-of-the-moment decision to come see you. This produced a barely audible grunt from homicide detective Fred Hutton. So it wasn't a mutual decision, I suggested. Maybe not, but here we are, Deirdre said, leaning forward, clearly finished with the chit-chat portion of the meeting. I want to get your take on something, a case we're working on. While we were married, Deirdre had risen steadily through the district attorney's office and was now well-ensconced and well-respected as an assistant DA. Her close working relationship with the Minneapolis Police Department's Homicide Division had produced several stunning murder convictions and one divorce. This last occurrence was due primarily to her too-close-working relationship with homicide detective Fred Hutton, although I'm sure that somewhere, somehow, she blamed me. "'You've read about the Josiah Manning murder-suicide?' she asked. I nodded and took another sip of coffee. "'I heard about it in passing,' I said, "'but I don't know any of the details.' But you know who Josiah Manning was. I shrugged. He was a big anti-death penalty, anti-suicide guy, right? The biggest. And he killed someone in the opposition? Not just someone. He basically killed the opposition. Harley Keller, the leader of what people had come to call the pro-death movement. Because he believed in suicide? More than believed. Harley Keller was a true zealot. He was the suicide poster child. They have that? Weird. Although my alleged quip drew only a scowl from Deirdre, I thought I detected the faintest hint of a smile on homicide detective Fred Hutton's lips. Then it was gone as quickly as it had appeared. So let me get this straight. The anti-suicide guy who believed fervently in the sanctity of life murdered the pro-suicide guy... Then, to top it all off, he killed himself? That's what the police believe, Deirdre said, throwing a sidelong glance at her husband. He did not return it. Well, get Alanis Morissette on the line, because that's pretty ironic. Deirdre sighed. Eli, do you have any cultural references that are less than twenty years old? I was tempted to dazzle her with a Nipsey Russell-style poem on the topic, but thought better of it. So your opinion differs from that of the Homicide Department. On several key points, yes, she said, as she began to dig through her purse. Which is why I wanted to talk to you. Why I wanted both of us to talk to you, she added. On occasion, you've offered a unique perspective that I think could be useful in this instance. I believe the phrase you used when we were married was, you have a bizarre way of looking at things. Yes, she said, leaving it at that. She pulled an iPad from the depths of her purse. I want you to look at this. She opened the cover, clicking and swiping until she found what she was looking for. This is about four years old, and it is just one of many, many similar videos. She hit a play button and handed me the iPad. I tilted it so that homicide detective Fred Hutton could see as well, but he waved me away. I've seen it, he said, crossing his arms and slouching back into his chair, setting his gaze once again on an invisible point across the room. The sound of an argument pulled my attention back to the iPad. Actually, it wasn't technically an argument as only one person was talking, or more accurately, shouting. That's Harley Keller, Deirdre pointed out as I looked at the man on the screen. He was gaunt and pale, a crew cut consisting of wisps of white hair covering his large, bony head. His eyes, which burned at someone off-camera, were sharp, steely blue. He was shouting, ranting, really, so vehemently that small specks of white spittle were visible around his lips and on his chin. The video cut at that point to another man, who listened intently to the bile being thrown at him. Like Harley, he appeared to be in his early 60s, but there was a calmness and a warmth to him that made him seem younger. Josiah Manning, I suggested, beating Deirdre to the punch. She nodded, and I turned back to the screen. The show they were appearing on wasn't the Charlie Rose show, but they certainly could have been sued by Charlie's people. They had blatantly lifted the program's distinctive look right down to the same round oak table and deep dark backdrop. Death is a basic human right, Harley was shouting. A person has a right to their death, just as they have a right to their life. If I wish to end my life, that is my personal decision, and you and the public and the state have no right to stand in the way of my decision. He stared daggers at Josiah, seeming to dare him to speak. Josiah returned the stare, but his was warm and without judgment. Don't you want to answer that? Harley snapped. Gladly, Josiah said softly, "It's just that since you've interrupted me at every opportunity this evening, I just wanted to make sure that I in turn was not about to inadvertently interrupt you." Harley sat back and spread his hands open before him, giving the floor to Josiah. "Well, I certainly respect your opinion," he said quietly. "'I cannot endorse it nor justify it. "'Life in all of its forms is sacred. "'It was given to us, and it's not ours to take away, "'whether via a lethal injection in a prison "'or an exhaust hose in a garage.' "'So you insist,' Harley said, cutting him off, "'that you have a right to keep me alive, "'and I don't have a right to choose the time of my death. "'Is that what you're saying?' but that is complete and utter... Some network sensor somewhere had pulled the sound down for the next few profanity-laden seconds of his rant, so Deirdre took that opportunity to take the iPad back and hit the pause button. Wow, I said. After seeing that, if you told me one of those guys killed the other guy and then himself, I would have sworn it was Harley Keller who pulled that trigger twice, not Josiah Manning. My point exactly, Deirdre said. "'as she slipped the tablet back into the dark recesses of her purse. "'I'm just having a bit of trouble getting the homicide department "'to see things my way.' "'It's cut and dried,' homicide detective Fred Hutton grumbled. "'And that's the truth.' "'The truth is rarely cut and never dried,' I misquoted. "'Not at all sure what that was supposed to mean. "'So what does homicide think happened?' "'Harley Keller invited Josiah Manning to his home,' he began." His home? Harley Keller lived in a townhouse on Cedar Lake, Deirdre explained. Homicide Detective Fred Hutton gave her a long look and then continued. Harley Keller invited Josiah Manning to his home, he repeated slowly. At some point, the two must have gone upstairs to Mr. Keller's office on the second floor. While in that office, Josiah Manning shot Harley Keller point-blank in the chest. Yikes, I said involuntarily. He died almost immediately, Homicide Detective Fred Hutton continued, ignoring my short outburst. Josiah Manning then went downstairs, sat down in a chair in the living room, put the gun in his mouth, and pulled the trigger. Where did you find the gun? On the floor next to the chair. Powder burns. Residue was found on the fingers of Josiah Manning's right hand. How about Harley Keller? His hands were clean. I sat back and considered what I had heard. I took a sip of my coffee, which had already turned cold. Maybe someone else shot them both and then left? Homicide detective Fred Hutton shook his head. Place was locked up tight. Both front and rear entrances were secured with heavy chain locks, all windows locked from the inside. Responding officers had to break down the front door after neighbors reported gunshots. Suicide note? He shook his head. I took another sip of coffee and then turned to Deirdre. And you think it happened some other way? Yes, she said. What's odd about this, I said, as a new thought began to dawn on me. Is that in reality? There were three deaths that night. This produced curious looks from both of them. How do you figure? Deirdre asked. I counted them out on my fingers for emphasis. Harley Keller and Josiah Manning both died, I said, but so too did Josiah Manning's reputation. I mean, the method of his death, will now always overshadow his life's work. The anti-suicide guy will now always be known as the guy who killed himself. And Harley Keller certainly had the motive to put that reputation to rest. I finished the rest of my coffee. Can we go look at the crime scene? I said as I stood up. Deirdre was already on her feet. I thought you'd never ask. You know how sometimes you can tell when a couple is arguing even when you can't hear them? I mean, just by their body language? That was the sense I got as I followed the happy couple across town to the Cedar Lake neighborhood. From my vantage point in the front seat of my car, I could see them talking in the front seat of theirs, and from where I sat, it did not look like a happy conversation. For some odd reason, that made me sad, because I figured... If she had to leave me, the very least she could do would try to be happy with the guy she left me for. I mean, otherwise, what was the point? In fact, on the few occasions I had witnessed these arguments, I had to restrain myself from saying something along the lines of, geez, you left me so you could argue with him? You could have skipped the divorce and continued arguing with me. But I wisely never said that, at least not so far. Harley Keller lived, or had lived, on Cedar Lake, the most mysterious of the Minneapolis chain of lakes, primarily because it was impossible to drive around it. You could drive past it, but not around it. His townhouse, like all the others connected to it, looked relatively new and completely identical, a different brightly colored windsock hung in front of each entryway, probably in a failed attempt to aid in the identification process. Deirdre and Homicide Detective Fred Hutton were already unlocking the front door when I caught up to them. No crime scene tape, I observed. It's no longer a crime scene, Homicide Detective Fred Hutton grunted as he pushed the door open. I was surprised to be greeted by the sound of a yipping dog. Hey, there's a dog, I said, clearly stating the obvious. That's weird. Why is there a dog? There are a variety of pets still in residence, Homicide Detective Fred Hutton stated flatly. I looked at Deirdre for a more complete explanation. Harley Keller had a dog, three cats, a bird, and an aquarium. We were going to turn them all over to animal control, but the next of kin requested against that, she said. She gestured toward the identical doorway to our right. The lady next door stops in several times a day to take care of them. His next of kin are coming to town at the end of the week to handle the estate. That's quite a menagerie, I said, especially for a pro-death kind of guy like Harley Keller. Yes, it is, Homicide Detective Fred Hutton said with what sounded like a sigh. This was followed immediately by something that sounded like a sneeze, and then another, and another. Fred's allergic to cats. And dogs, Deirdre said by way of explanation. At that moment, a small mutt of a dog came racing toward us, yelping happily. Because Homicide Detective Fred Hutton was the only one of us allergic to animals, the dog naturally went right for him. He dropped a slimy, spit-covered rubber ball at the detective's feet. Homicide Detective Fred Hutton gave the ball a disgruntled kick as he pulled out a handkerchief to catch his next sneeze. The handkerchief arrived a millisecond too late. As the dog chased after the errant ball, a large tabby cat arrived. Began to wend its way around Homicide Detective Fred Hutton's ankles. The cat was soon joined by another cat, this one small and black. Then the dog returned with the ball and the next phase of sneezing began. Can we proceed? Homicide Detective Fred Hutton pleaded between sneezes. By all means, I agreed. Give me the nickel tour. Sure. The dog is named Gypsy and the cats are Jinx. Penny and Deirdre was cut off before she could complete her list. He means a tour of the crime scene, homicide detective Fred Hutton barked. Oh, she said, acting innocent. I thought it wasn't a crime scene anymore. I put a hand up to stop them. The way you two are behaving, it feels like it could easily become a crime scene again at any moment. Could we just stick to the facts of the case? While her husband blew his nose, Deirdre pointed out the chair where Josiah Manning had allegedly shot himself. It was an oversized recliner, upholstered in a light blue plush fabric. A large bloodstain covered the chair's headrest. On a hunch, I tugged on each armrest. They opened, revealing a storage chamber within each arm. Both chambers were not only empty, but spotless. Deirdre pointed out the place on the floor where he had dropped the gun. I gestured toward the chair and she nodded her permission. I slowly sat in the recliner, taking care not to lean back on the headrest. The blood had long since dried, but human nature dictated that I keep my distance, and so I did. I mimed the motions of putting a gun in my mouth and pulling the trigger. My arm dropped to the side. I looked down to see if my imaginary gun had landed in the spot Deirdre had indicated. To my mind's eye, it was a direct hit. She then headed toward the stairway. I followed, and once he was able to disentangle himself from his animal friends, homicide detective Fred Hutton trailed behind us. We passed an impressively huge fish tank built into one wall. The fish swam aimlessly back and forth, looking exotic and colorful. I glanced at the tank and then back to the sniffling mess behind me. Allergic to fish, too?' I asked, trying to hide how much I was enjoying the question. "'With my luck, yes,' he said as another sneeze arrived. We followed Deirdre up the stairs with both cats doing their best to get under homicide detective Fred Hutton's feet as he blearily navigated the stairs. Harley Keller's office was a large room at the top of the staircase. A computer sat atop an Ikea-style desk with matching bookcases lining one wall. Photos of Harley with notables lined the other wall. The rest of the room consisted of a series of cat beds, a dog bed, and various carpeted structures designed to provide an indoor cat with the climbing experience they were being denied by being forced to live inside. To prove that thesis, a cat I hadn't yet seen was resting atop the highest structure in the room. Homicide Detective Fred Hutton stood in the doorway and sneezed. As if responding to this call, Gypsy had returned and dropped the spit-covered ball at the detective's feet. Once he realized that the human had no desire to play with him, the dog sniffed at the ball and then marched over to his rag-filled dog bed, circling the bed three times before finally settling in. I looked down at a large dark brown bloodstain in the center of the room which had soaked into the cream-colored plush carpeting. Based on the position of the body and the blood splatter, it appears that Harley was shot right here, Deidre said, pointing to where the body had fallen. So, I said, trying to work out the chronology, Harley and Josiah came up here. Josiah shoots Harley in the chest. He falls there, I said, indicating the blood stain. Josiah then marches downstairs and shoots himself in the head. That's the police version, yes, she said. I stooped down. From where I was standing, I could see down the stairs into the living room. However, the recliner where Josiah had shot himself was not in view. I turned to Deirdre. And what's your theory? That Harley shot Josiah and then shot himself? That makes more sense to me even though the facts clearly do not support that supposition. Homicide Detective Fred Hutton's voice was a little ragged from the sneezing, but his attitude came through loud and clear. I think if you insist on looking at only some of the facts, you can easily reach the wrong conclusion. I recognized Deirdre's tone and my stomach tightened in what could only be called a Pavlovian response. I crossed the room and sat at the desk trying to gather my thoughts while the happy couple continued to squabble. I did my best to block out their bickering while I sorted through the elements of the puzzle. I knew from past experience that if Deirdre was insisting about a point this vehemently, there was likely something behind it and it was worth pursuing. She was adamant that something wasn't quite right in what we were seeing. She didn't believe that Josiah shot Harley and then himself. And given what little I knew about the two men, I was inclined to agree. However, if Harley merely wanted Josiah dead, he could have just shot him. And then, if he was so inclined, he could have shot himself. But instead, he felt the need to kill Josiah's reputation as well. But how? I thought about all the methods I knew to get an object from one side of the stage to the other. All the ways I had learned to take something off a person without them knowing it. And the more useful art of putting something on them without tipping them off. I thought about mirrors and stooges and dual realities and other forms of misdirection. I thought about my act from that afternoon. And then... A glimmer of an idea began to take hold in the back of my head, but it was having trouble making itself heard above the din in the room. "'Could you two please knock it off?' I finally said, saying it much louder than I had intended. My volume and tone produced the desired effect, and they both stopped in mid-argument. "'I can't hear myself think,' I added, at a much lower level. I got up and saw they were each looking at me like contrite children." I moved to the center of the room. So, this is where Harley was standing when he was shot. Deirdre nodded, double-checked it with Homicide Detective Fred Hutton, and then nodded again. Is it possible that someone could use a handgun, like the one used in this case, and shoot themselves in the chest? I mean, hold their arm out, point the gun at their own chest, and shoot themselves? I demonstrated what I meant, stretching out my arm and turning my hand back toward my chest. Deirdre started to answer, but homicide detective Fred Hutton beat her to it. Yes, but a bullet to the heart would produce nearly instant death, he said. There would be no time to get the gun downstairs, not to mention the powder burns on the hand, he added. Deirdre held up a hand for him to stop talking. He didn't look like he wanted to but a sudden sneeze shifted his attention away from me and back to his handkerchief. Deirdre jumped on this pause. "'What are you thinking?' she said, stepping toward me. "'What if it happened this way?' I began, heading toward the door. "'Oh, do either of you have a gun? I mean an unloaded gun, about the same size that was used here?' Still unable to speak, Homicide Detective Fred Hutton shook his head and then registered a look of surprise." as Deirdre began to dig through her purse. A moment later, she produced a small handgun. "'I checked it out of the armory this morning,' she said, by way of explanation, "'in case we needed to reenact anything. "'Don't worry, it's not loaded.' "'Great,' I said, taking the gun from her, surprised at its heft. "'It was a little heavy, but not too heavy for what I had in mind. "'Also, do you have any gloves like the ones you use when sifting through evidence?' Deirdre nodded at Homicide Detective Fred Hutton, who glared back at her. There was a short, tense standoff, and then he acquiesced. He put his handkerchief in one pocket and then pulled a pair of thin latex gloves out of the other. He handed them to me, and I pulled one onto my right hand as I sprinted out of the room and down the stairs. I ducked into the kitchen for a moment, and the couple had made it to the base of the stairs by the time I returned. Okay, I said, beginning my impromptu presentation. Let's try this scenario on for size. I'm Harley Keller, and I have just invited Josiah Manning over to my townhouse. I'm not entirely sure how I got him here. Maybe something about burying the hatchet. But anyway, I invite him, and he comes over. I walked to the front door and mimed each action as I narrated. Josiah comes in the front door. I welcome him and lock the door behind him and chain the door. Then, with his back to me, I knock him out with the butt of the gun. I went through these actions, pretending to strike and then lower an unconscious body into the recliner. Now, this puts a pretty big wound on the back of Josiah's head, but that will be obliterated when I put the gun in his mouth, wrap his fingers around the trigger, and then pull it. My impression of the sound of the gun was loud enough to make Deirdre jump. I patted her on the shoulder as I headed back to the stairs. Sorry about that, I said. Anyway, now, Josiah is dead and he's got powder marks on his right hand. The first half of my plan is completed. Now for phase two. I took the stairs two at a time and then had to wait while Deirdre and Homicide Detective Fred Hutton trudged back up the stairs. Once again, the cats did their best to trip him up. I waited patiently for them to arrive, and then waited a few more seconds for another quick round of sneezing. ''Okay, so now it's Harley's turn,'' I said, stretching my right arm as far in front of me as I could and pointing the gun back toward my chest. I shoot myself point-blank in the heart, drop the gun, and die a few seconds later. I looked up and smiled at the couple in the doorway. Just that simple, I added. Deirdre squinted at me, and Homicide Detective Fred Hutton shook his head. Now, I continued, you're probably wondering how Harley got the gun from the floor next to him, down the stairs, and next to Josiah's body. Yes, we are, Deirdre said, sounding annoyed. That's the whole point. Well... I think he did it the same way I got the cards from Joan's hands to his hands during my act today, I said, gesturing toward homicide detective Fred Hutton. Melissa, he said, and then blew his nose. What? The volunteer's name was Melissa. Whatever. So, Deirdre said, clearly frustrated, how did you get the cards from her hands to his hands? I smiled. With an invisible assistant, I said. Before she could pursue this further, I checked that I was standing in the right spot and pointed the gun at my chest. Blam! I shouted, again making her jump. I clutched my chest with one hand while dropping the gun to the floor with the other, and then I prayed. A moment later, my prayers were rewarded as we heard the patter of paws on carpet. We turned to see that Gypsy had jumped out of his dog bed and was scampering across the room. He happily picked up the gun between his teeth. It was a mouthful, but he was able to grasp it tightly, and then he trotted out of the room and down the stairs. We followed, heading halfway down the stairs, just in time to see him drop the gun right next to the recliner. He started back toward us, Forcing me to run back up the stairs to Harley's office. A dog that smart? You could teach him that trick in just a few days, I said over my shoulder. Well, that covers the gun, Homicide Detective Fred Hutton said between sneezes. But what about the powder burns? I returned to my position in the center of the office and peeled off the glove. In the few seconds I have left after shooting myself, I explained. I peel off the glove and drop it to the floor. I did just that. But we would have found it by the body, homicide detective Fred Hutton began, but he was interrupted by Gypsy, who ran back into the room and up to the glove. He sniffed it for a brief second, then picked it up and carried it back to his dog bed, where he began to chew on it happily. In just a few seconds, it was virtually shredded. I ducked into the kitchen and put a dog treat in that glove, I said. But I suspect that Harley probably used a linen glove and soaked it in chicken or beef broth the day before. I think a thorough examination of Gypsy's bed might even produce a few remaining tatters of that glove, which would undoubtedly have powder burns on it. Homicide detective Fred Hutton made a move toward the bed and the glove Gypsy was currently enjoying But the dog growled and bared his teeth. The detective wisely stepped back from the dog bed. We'll look into that, he said dryly. What I'm really hoping, Detective, is that you can find it in your heart not to arrest that dog as an accessory to murder. This produced a smile and a chuckle, but not from Homicide Detective Fred Hutton. He turned and spoke sharply to Deirdre. That's not funny. Oh, I don't know, she said. It's a little funny. You just have no sense of humor. This remark triggered a new phase of their ongoing argument. I listened for a few painful seconds and then held up my hands in protest. Here's the thing, I said as I backed toward the door. I'm happy to help you out from time to time, but if it means having to endure an episode of the Bickersons every time I see you two, count me out. Deirdre gave me a puzzled look. case you're keeping track, that reference is probably well over 60 years old. This did little to abate her confusion. Thanks again, Gypsy, for being the best invisible assistant I've ever seen, I continued, tossing the remaining dog treat across the room. The little dog jumped up and caught it in the air. As I headed down the stairs, I could hear the crunching of that dog treat followed by the sound of an argument beginning anew this was cut short by another flurry of sneezing which was the last sound i heard before i shut the door behind me all right that's the
1: invisible assistant how many short stories have you written there are currently uh, as of this recording uh there are uh, a dozen Of them, and they're all they can all be found in book number eight, The Self Working Trick, uh, which includes the two that are most known uh, The Invisible Assistant and The Last Customer. If you haven't heard Jim read The Last Customer, go to our YouTube channel because you can listen to the reading of The Last Customer for free. In fact, there's a lot of stuff on the YouTube channel. I've just been adding stuff to the behind-the-page YouTube channel uh, that's just either related to the books or related to me. For example, I've put up a couple of the movies I've made. Uh, the Cookie Project with a special appearance by Jim Cunningham is up there, I imagine. Uh, pretty soon we'll get them all up there. So if you're just looking for a uh, fun stuff to look through. Uh, there's a lot of bonus stuff and weird things on our YouTube channel.
0: So can I ask questions about the short stories quickly? Yeah, As sure. a person interested. So do you, uh, like I know when Stephen King writes a book, he always says he's got another, about a quarter tank of gas left after he finishes a novel. And that's why we get these novellas mm-hmm. that have become, you know, uh, four part books that, have been turned into movies. Do you find that too that you, after you've done writing a Eli Marks story a book that you've got enough juice left oh, to do a short story?
1: Not at all. Um <laughs> not at all. No, the 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 dozen stories uh in the self-working trick were sort of a challenge I gave myself over the course of a year rather than writing one. Eli Marks mystery, um, because the hardest part I have in writing a mystery is the mystery part. Um, The rest of it, the magic stuff and the banter stuff and the funny stuff, that comes very easily, the mystery, uh, particularly writing a fair mystery that people get to the end and go, oh, that's surprising and inevitable. That's the hardest part. So I rather than spend a year writing a novel, I spent a year writing 10 short mysteries uh, just to try it out. And those were all assembled with the two existing ones uh, into the self-working trick.
0: So you, you wrote one of these short stories a month, essentially. Uh, Yeah. Sort of. Sort of ish. Yeah. Fascinating.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Now. That really wraps up season one, but let's spend just a moment talking about season two. We've recorded a bunch of interviews for season two. We still have a bunch more to record, but it's looking to be a very interesting, eclectic season. Uh, it'll be The Bullet Catch, which is the second book in the series. And it is one of my favorites. It is, for those of you who are uh, into this sort of thing, it it pays homage to uh, Raymond Chandler's The Long Goodbye, uh, sort of to the movie, but mostly to the novel. And once you get to the end of Uh, the bullet catch. If you've read The Long Goodbye, you'll go, oh, I see what he did there. Yeah, that is sort of like The Long Goodbye. So we will listen to that over the course of 24 episodes. But we've also got uh, some great guests coming up who tie into uh, either things in the book or general themes uh, in the story. Or one of the things we like exploring are um, people who started out doing magic when they were younger and then sort of drifted into something else, but still love magic. We have a few people who are going to talk about that
0: over the season some some great guests coming up uh, Joshua J Stan Allen yeah. um, who up David Parr Yeah Kayla Harrison Drescher's going to come Harrison Greenbaum who made me laugh from beginning to end of that interview who else you got on the list
1: uh, Kayla Drescher uh, Jonathan Levitt uh, who we love Darren oh, yeah. Armstrong who who was so great to talk About his career, but then he also uh, will have a little bonus with him talking about his experience on Fool Us, because his experience I think was different than almost anyone else who's been on that show. And John's just a great magician who I've watched for years and years. Uh, We got Ryan Kane, who's going to talk about stock lines, Uh, Pat Hazel, uh, who you may not know as a magician, but who has actually pretty good. Magic Chops and did it for years and years and years uh, as a stand-up comedian who did Magic uh, and has gone on now to become a a writer and producer.
0: And we talked to some old friends too, some people we we get a chance to, don't we, to talk to David Regal. Yep. Um, Steve Cohen will be back. Yes.
1: And some more guests that I'm still working on, but it's going to be a really, really good season. Uh, Particularly the first person we're going to talk to, which is uh, sort of might seem like a left turn because it's Dennis Palumbo, who is a uh, a mystery writer and a psychotherapist uh, who um, also uh, co-wrote one of
0: our favorite movies. My favorite year. Yeah. Great film. I think I'm going to watch that tonight.
1: Yeah. It's, it, it holds up really,
0: really well, but what, uh,
1: What we brought Dennis on to talk about was throughout uh, The Bullet Catch, Eli is dealing with uh, panic attacks and a phobia. And since Dennis is you know, a mystery writer and a psychotherapist, I thought it'd be fun to chat about uh, his perspective on that. And it was, Uh, he's a fascinating, funny, interesting guy. If you haven't read any of his uh, books or short stories, I recommend them. Uh, I was inspired uh, for the self-working trick book of short stories from his because they are so nicely crafted. So that'll be
0: coming up uh, real soon. Season two, episode one. And although uh, we can't prove it, uh, I come from a long line of Palumbo's and, um, at some point somewhere, I, I, I we have the same blood coursing through our veins. I'm positive of it. Yeah. Uh, I, although I can't prove it and it's, I'm probably wrong, but I, it was nice to talk to a fellow Italian.
1: And if you guys like the show, I think you might, cause this is the 24th episode and you're still listening. Uh, hit the subscribe button or tell your friends
0: about it, uh, or write a review. Reviews are great. They really are. And I, I can't, uh. I can't thank you, John, enough for all of this. It's been so much fun for me to get a chance to spend time, not just with you, but with some of my magical heroes. And I have you to thank for that. So I'm grateful.
1: Well, I have you to thank Forgive me the idea to do the Eli Mark series to begin with. So uh, mutual thanks back and forth. Again, check out our YouTube channel for all kinds of bonus fun stuff. you're so looking for movies to watch. We had a couple of those up as well, as well as a lot of other fun stuff. Anyway, that's it for us. Now we will see you on the other side when we hit season two. Thanks, everybody.
0: Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham, produced by Alberts Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at Mysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S mysteries.com. And thanks for listening.